When I wandered into this lush massage parlor all those years ago in 86, the women there were saying, we need a union, you know, we need a union. And it occurred to me too, I thought, gosh, you know, it felt so normal turning up for work, doing the shift from 7 p.m. at night until 3 a.m. in the morning. And it was work, it felt like work. And just hearing people say we're not recognised and people don't understand us. So that's really where it started. That's Catherine Healy, a sex workers' rights activist from New Zealand. In 1987, she founded the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective and started advocating for the decriminalization of sex work. People will say things like, oh, she's selling her body, and of course sex workers will say, no, I'm not. I still have my body. I'm providing sexual services. That's very different to selling my body. And it seems like there's only one way of being. You know, you can't have a lot of sex and you can't charge for sexual services because you're a woman. This is Finding Humanity, and I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Through personal stories of courage and purpose, our podcast puts a human face on the most critical human rights and social justice issues facing our world. In each episode, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action, and together, to help create a better world. Catherine grew up in a suburb of the capital of New Zealand. Her dad was a public servant, and her mom, a shorthand typist. I grew up in a a really special, lovely place. We could go up into the bush and play, and uh, we lived by a little seaside bay, and people had been there for generations, so, you know, everyone kind of had very close connections. I had three siblings, and yeah, so it was a very special, happy childhood. Catherine went on to teacher's college and became a primary school teacher. During that time, she noticed that her roommate brought different men home with her every night. And then, you know, it dawned that she was, in fact, a sex worker, and I confronted her, you know, in all my righteous way, and I was appalled, absolutely appalled, and felt that she would be very grateful for an intervention from me to rescue her. So that really was my first uh, encounter. I mean, she was absolutely (laughs) adamant that I had no business interfering with her, that she was making choices here. Catherine's reaction was influenced by the stigma many sex workers face. At the time, sex work was illegal in New Zealand. As of 2021, there are 64 countries that have decriminalized sex workers with various degrees of regulations. However, in most parts of the world, sex work continues to be criminalized. With women making up about 80% of all sex workers, many are left unprotected and vulnerable to abuse from clients, from traffickers, and from their pimps. Regulating and dictating what women can and cannot do with their bodies has always happened. That's Abigail Swenstein, a public defender at the Legal Aid Society in New York City. And control over women is inherent in our history and in our society. And I think that's the reason, right? Because it's people making decisions for themselves, what they want to do with their body. And, you know, that's really problematic 
for some. You know, and then the other issue is that it's sex and there's still a huge portion of the population that, you know, advocates for only procreative sex and stresses abstinence only education. And so I think when we take those two things, it's very problematic for people and they want to control it. The stigmatization is further reinforced by the way sex workers are represented in the media and in popular culture. It's often not respectful of the absolute diversity of people involved in sex work. That's Catherine again. You know, it's either the person who has a drug dependency and alcohol issue, isn't in charge of their life, etc. You know, people think about that person and is in dire need of help. And the other common perception, which is also reinforced in lots of ways, you know, popular movies often talk up the pretty woman, you know, the high-class cool girl, etc. is the other popular. But, you know, in between and mixed up, there's so many different kinds of people. The diversity is enormous of those people involved in sex work. And of course, you know, gender is a big issue as well, because often people say, well, you know, we have to protect women involved in sex work. And of course, we have men, we have trans people, we have gender non-conforming, you know, lots of different kinds of people who are represented in sex work. This is a realization Catherine had when she entered the sex work industry. In 1986, she started working as a receptionist at a massage parlor to supplement her income. Catherine soon realized that the massage parlor was a facade for sex work. When I went into the massage parlor scene in the mid-80s, what surprised me, I think, was, you know, the diversity and the, just the approachability of people. These women, and it was a, a women-centric place, were busy with lots of things. You know, there were people who had left school, there were people who were studying, there were people bringing up their children and wanted to put curtains in the house, you know, that kind of thing. The diversity of the people involved and and the warmth, you know, just... And, and what also surprised me, often, you know, you hear it said that sex work or people who say these sorts of things often use that word prostitution, which I prefer not to. People often talk about it as a cold, unfriendly world and, uh, you know, very dodgy and dangerous and so on and my experience and certainly the experience of a lot of people I was working with in that place wasn't at all like that. As Catherine mentioned, the word prostitute can be used in demeaning and stigmatizing ways. The term sex worker recognizes that sex work is work. A sex worker is defined as an adult who receives money or goods in exchange for consensual sexual services or erotic performances, either regularly or occasionally. Catherine started engaging in sex work at the massage parlor. She eventually transitioned out from teaching and went from earning $400 a week to $2,000 a week. Despite the financial freedom that this afforded her, she also experienced difficult working conditions. We were allowed to massage and we had to keep up this great pretense which, um, of course, you know, in the era of HIV and AIDS was really contrary to what was needed. We needed 
to have a great deal of information about ways in which to protect ourselves. We needed to be talking frankly about the nature of our work, you know, safe sex. Um, we needed health promotion, you know, the lots of things that we needed. And instead, what we found was that we were monitored by the police in a negative way. We were sometimes entrapped by them. They would come in and pretend to be our clients and we would be taken to court and stood up and named and shamed and called prostitutes. And the result of that for most was a conviction. You couldn't then continue to work in a massage parlour. You were expelled because you'd been found to be involved in prostitution. So it meant that it also would make it very difficult for you to find other work because if you had any convictions, this would come up inevitably. For this reason, in 1987, Catherine decided to create the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective. The collective started advocating to decriminalize sex work by building relationships with other organizations, many of which were led by women. Those kinds of organizations that spanned across public health, human rights, welfare, unions, etc., felt that they could contribute to making this change happen and support us. And then eventually entered into a contract with the government who were, I suspect, very relieved that we were organising against um, the transmission of HIV. Probably less relieved to hear that we wanted to change the laws governing us. And, you know, we certainly realised that we had a major conflict on our hands with the laws against prostitution and that we needed to work hard to get those laws repealed. Like Catherine, many experts favor the decriminalization of sex work over its legalization. Legalization is the regulation of sex work with laws regarding where, when, and how it takes place. Decriminalization, on the other hand, is the removal of criminal penalties for selling and buying sex. Advocates say that getting rid of these penalties is the only way to keep sex workers safe from the harassment of police and to guarantee them full human rights. Despite this, many countries such as Norway, France, Ireland, and Israel have adopted a Nordic model that prosecutes people who seek to pay for sexual services rather than the sex workers themselves. First introduced in Sweden in 1999, this model aims to end demand for sex work by continuing the criminalization of purchasing sex. The Nordic model was designed under the assumption that most sex workers are victims of human trafficking. Therefore, it does not take into consideration that there are some people who willingly choose to be in the business of selling sex services. Although at a first glance, it might seem like this model protects sex workers, many argue that it actually jeopardizes them. Advocates like myself do not believe that legalization provides the protection that people in the sex trade need in order to live safely. That's Abigail again. I think that people hear it and they think, oh, it's a good thing. It's a halfway measure. Like it doesn't criminalize sex workers. You know, it just gets the guys that are paying for sex and they're not good guys. And, and I feel like that's uh, just r really big oversimplification of the issue because the goal of that model is not sex worker safety. The goal of that model is to end sex work. As Abigail notes, because the goal of the Nordic model is to end sex work, 
It makes it harder for sex workers to find safe places to work, to unionize, work together, and support and protect one another. It also decreases their negotiating power. When someone purchasing sex is like worried about getting arrested, it's more likely that they will put lots of conditions on the interaction. So dictating where the interaction takes place, how quickly it has to take place, what identification they're willing to share with the sex worker so that they can do a safety screening. And so it, it puts power in the hands of the person who could face potential criminalization. If both actors, their actions were decriminalized, then I think that it would be a more even power dynamic and it would give more negotiating power to the people that are selling sex. Another reason why advocates favor full decriminalization is because it would diminish the interaction of sex workers with the police. We hear from a lot of our clients that full decriminalization would have made them feel safer. That any form of any interaction with law enforcement, with the police, is a negative. And so if there's surveillance of sex workers in order to arrest and criminalize purchasers of sex, it makes sex workers feel less safe. It's very clear when I've you know spoken to clients over the years that my clients have terrible interactions with law enforcement. Everything from misgendering trans women to engaging in sexual assault and rape um, of sex workers. New Zealand is the first and only country where sex work is fully decriminalized. In 2003, over 15 years after Catherine formed the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, they managed to pass the New Zealand Prostitute Reform Act. Mostly when people think about creating legislation around sex work, they don't think about it as a priority for protecting sex work because they tend to think about it as a way to ensure that, you know, communities are safe from sex workers and the presence of sex workers and their clients. So our legislation came up, you know, and out from us. We built the legislation to make sure that sex workers were at the centre of it. The New Zealand Prostitute Reform Act makes it legal for any citizen over 18 years old to sell sexual services. Street-based sex work is legal, as is running a brothel. Sex workers' rights are guaranteed through employment and human rights legislation. New Zealand's system is far from perfect. Decriminalization allows investors with capital to form large brothels. These brothels compete with independent sex workers on the price and range of sexual services offered. Moreover, no undocumented immigrants or anyone on temporary work visa is legally allowed to take part in the sex work industry. However, after decriminalization, sex workers felt more comfortable reporting abuse to the police. They were also more able to insist on safer sex practices and to refuse unwanted clients. In one study, 90% of sex workers said that decriminalization gave them employment, legal, health, and safety rights. 57% said that police attitudes towards sex workers changed for the better. One of the big changes that occurred for us in terms of the decriminalization of sex work was that sex workers who were in precarious situations where they felt that they were being coerced or in fact were being coerced or forced to do things. 
they didn't want to do in the context of their sex work, a lot of support systems opened up instead of having to duck and hide, as we did, my generation of sex workers from the police. These sex workers can sit up and say, actually, you don't have the right to tell me to do that. And shall I call the police? I go to work. I shouldn't be spoken to in this manner. I have the right to expect to be treated fairly and not experience stress or bullying, all those things, you know, that can occur in the workplace, which in my time of being a sex worker would have been fanciful if I felt I could reach out to anyone who was official for protection. We believe, you know, the decriminalisation of sex workers and sex work-related activities is really important. It creates that environment where people can speak up. We have clients who speak up. They're not arrested. A 2021 U.S. State Department trafficking report warned that the decriminalization of sex work may incentivize different forms of human trafficking and abuse of trafficking victims. However, Catherine and other advocates believe that the decriminalization of sex work may actually help reduce human trafficking. When sex workers are freed from the threat of criminal penalties, they can organize and collaborate with law enforcement. That is Stacey Lee Manuel, a program director at the Open Society Foundations. She works to advance the health and human rights of marginalized communities. For example, we've seen in some places where sex work is criminalized, Sex workers who know of human trafficking rings or instances of perceived human trafficking, they are afraid to approach police officers to report it. They have fear of reprisal, they have fear of prosecution, arrest and detention. And in cases where that threat doesn't exist or the stigma is reduced, they could work better. Advocates like Stacey believe that unless sex workers and clients are decriminalized, they are unlikely to feel safe reporting important information about crimes. Victims of human trafficking themselves are also less likely to come forward because of fear of reprisal. On the other hand, opposing groups believe that decriminalizing sex work leads to more human trafficking. They base their argument on studies concluding that countries with legalized prostitution are associated with higher human trafficking inflows than countries where prostitution is prohibited. However, the countries of the study have legalized or partially decriminalized sex work. In New Zealand, where sex work is fully decriminalized, the data on human trafficking is inconclusive. New Zealand spearheaded a sex workers movement that is now present in many countries around the world. However, it is ultimately up to governments to change the laws that keep sex workers from fully enjoying their human rights. A lot of responsibility lives with government. I think that firstly, government should recognize the right of all people to enjoy their privacy and freedoms and that undue state control over sex and sexual expression deters people from enjoying that. Laws against sex work intrude into private sexual behaviors and constitute a form of state control over bodies of women and LGBTI persons who make up a large majority of sex workers. If we look at decriminalization, we'll be able to move away from a system that continues to do that. I also asked Catherine what her recommendations were to advance the rights of sex workers. I think it's really important to have a look at what we're doing here in New Zealand if you're examining sex work legislation. In fact, 
the New Zealand model's been going since 2003. It's not perfect. You know, it's it's got a terrible anti-migrant clause in it, which, you know, we think is quite racist and certainly makes their situation precarious. However, if you're starting out on that process as a country, and you're probably not, countries have been dealing with sex work for a long time, if you're having discussions and sex workers aren't around the table as a part of those discussions, then you're flawed inevitably in where you're heading because, you know, sex workers need to be around the table informing and saying what kind of law and policy would make the most significant change to their occupational safety and health amongst other things, you know, as well as, you know, their labor rights and so on. For Abigail, changing the way we represent sex workers can also be an important step in improving their conditions. Whenever there's an article about prostitution or a video or anything, it always shows pictures of women standing around in high heels and fishnet stockings, you know, like leaning into cars. And that's not the reality of what sex work looks like and of what people look like when they're engaging in sex work. And I think starting with images of sex workers is really important uh, because sex workers look like me, they look like you, they look like all of us. And I think this like monolithic, you know, white woman standing next to a car wearing high heels and fishnet stockings um, is really problematic. I think that to stop using derogatory language would be an important step. So, you know, calling someone a prostitute because they might act outside of what someone else thinks is sexually appropriate, that's really important. And I think there's a lot of jokes, right? Like people make jokes about prostitution, jokes about sex work. And those jokes have real impact on people that have been in sex work. Abigail also believes that decriminalizing sex work would likely lead to the relocation of resources to those who need them the most. If things were to change, all of those resources, all that money that goes into criminalizing consenting adults, whether they're purchasing sex or whether they're selling sex, that's money that could be used for other things. You know, some people like working in sex work and some people think it's a great job for them. Some people engage in sex work because it's the best job that they can get at that time. But for those people that do want to leave sex work, what they need is financial support and people to care about them enough to invest in helping them leave prostitution if that's what they want. But as a society, we waste so much money policing sex work between consenting adults that could be better spent. Ultimately, it is about recognizing that sex workers deserve the same rights as any other worker. Most capitalistic countries, there's a lot of exploitive labor that is allowed to exist. And people aren't talking about, you know, getting rid of domestic workers or people that work in fast food restaurants and that are not paid a livable wage. Like in those sectors, advocates are talking about making things safer and more economically viable. That's the same conversation we should be having about sex work. And the way to make things safer for sex workers and more economically viable is for it to be decriminalized. I think that it's really time that we recognize that sex work isn't going away. Um, What we need to do is make it safer. (laughs) 
It's important to advocate for the rights of all workers. But when drafting laws to protect sex workers, we must also find effective ways to protect those who are trafficked and forced into prostitution. Through our podcast, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action. There are many ways to do that. Here are just a few suggestions. First, learn more about sex work and prostitution in your community. What is being done to ensure that sex workers are protected while victims of human trafficking are not further abused by the legal system? Second, advocate for the rights of sex workers and the full decriminalization of sex work. Look up organizations working on this in your community and city and support them. Third, learn more about sex work and how to end human trafficking. Use the educational toolkit that we've prepared on our website. Host a teach-in, share it with your friends, colleagues, and family. Knowledge is power, and you have the power to inspire real change. To learn more about this episode, check out the links to resources on our show notes and on our website, findinghumanitypodcast.com. I invite you to please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you've enjoyed Finding Humanity, please share it and leave us a review. To learn more about topics in our podcast and other opportunities to engage with us, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at find underscore humanity and on Facebook at Finding Humanity Podcast. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of the producers or any affiliated organizations. Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. Our executive producer is Camille Lorente. Associate producer is Fernanda Oriegas. Assistant producer is Diana Galbraith. Associate Production, Policy and Research by Martina Vanat, Aisha Amin, and Carolina Mendica. Mixing, Editing, and Music by Maverick Aquino. For this episode, I'd like to thank Catherine Healy, Abigail Swenstein, and Stacey Lee Manuel. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.